From 11FS, this is FinTech Insider News. This week, we bring you U.S. bank results are in and traders did significantly better than non-traders. Marketa eyes up an IPO as SoFi apply for a FinTech charter and your weekly wacky wirecard roundup. Good Lord, that's a great segment name. Welcome to episode 445 of Fintech Insider. I'm Sam All. Today I'm joined by my colleague and co-host Jason Bates, who I miss desperately. Jason, how are you? It's good to see you, Sam, on your you know little Zoom image. I can see you smiling <laughs> happily from Florida. It is. Uh, it has been an amazingly long time since we've been in the same room. So this seriously needs to end because I need to go to <laughs> London and eat some real food. Everybody, you've been doing well. I'm very well. How are you? I'm yeah, I'm in Florida, so we'll move on. As is normal, we're joined remotely on Zoom by incredible guests today. Making her FinTech Insider debut, we have Crystal Hu, M&A reporter at Reuters. Welcome to the show, Crystal. How are you doing? Hi, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Really excited to make you my debut today at a special time like this. It is a special time. Amen. And also making a welcome return visit, we have Nick Sando, FinTech investor at Octopus Ventures. Nick, how are you doing? I'm very good, Sam. Thanks for having me back. I absolutely love that name, Octopus Ventures. It's a cool name. Yeah, we have a giant octopus table in our lobby, which people uh, love to uh, comment about. Okay, after this is over, please send me an image <laughs> of that because I am jealous. All right, we had a lot to cover. So with that, let's get started. Um, our very first story, U.S. bank results are in and trading helps mass significant problems. This is a story from Business Insider. Overall, banks took massive hits as consumer banking faltered and they built up cushions against those bad loans. But those with trading platforms beat earnings expectations. Those without them did not. Citi, JPMC, and Wells set aside collectively almost $28 billion U.S. dollars amid concerns about customers defaulting on loans due to the pandemic. That decision helped push Wells Fargo to its first quarterly loss since the financial crisis. J.P. Morgan Chase profits roughly halved, while Citi's plunged 73%. But J.P. Morgan Chase and Citigroup still turned profits, thanks in large part to stellar trading performances. At J.P. Morgan, trading revenues reached $9.7 billion USD. That's an all-time record. Wells Fargo, which doesn't have significant trading operations, booked a $2.4 billion net loss three times more than anticipated. But trading is already cooling off, which could signal a rough second quarter, second half of 2020 for banks. So, I mean, good Lord. Think about this. Having a trading arm made all the difference. Business Insider ran some analysis looking at alternative reality where J.P. Morgan operated solely as an investment bank. The firm would have produced $16.4 billion U.S. in revenue and $5.5 billion USD in profits. Um, Jay, <laughs> who who's a day trader, Everybody, everybody. <laughs> um, I get, if you're a Jay, tra- you would probably be a kick-ass day trader if you wanted to be. By the way, Jay, I would I would take your recommendations. I mean, what do you think about what in the world is going on? Well, I mean, this is just the start, really, isn't it? We've we've seen the the health and social aspects of COVID, uh, but and I don't. I think a lot of people don't realize that the 2008 financial crisis, like started in was it February 2007? These things. Yeah have long uh, run-ups. And so this isn't even the the big hit. This is the big banks starting to put money aside because they know that they're going to need it. So look, we're we're going through the the horrific numbers of of people who are getting the virus and and unfortunately are dying. Um, 
but but this is banks now preparing for what happens later this year, the beginning of next, the end of next, where actually the the ripples of personal finance and business finance and ecosystems of suppliers relying on suppliers, relying you know who were who were supposed to be selling uh, whatever they're selling to uh, end customers who aren't buying it anymore. So um, I think it's only the start, and and I think these numbers will in the end, look small compared to the the final losses. Yeah, to your point, um, JP Morgan Chase, they set aside another 8.9 billion USD to brace itself for loan losses. And it still managed to churn out a profit of 4.7 billion USD. Um, like you said, let's see what happens in the next couple of quarters, you know, and where we're going to be. You know, one thing that did strike me, though, um, a difference between now and 2008, is the fact that most of these banks did put a cushion in place. They prepped, for, you know what I mean? The the the, the restrictions or, or the, the regulatory environment that we had kind of safeguarded the, us for this. I mean, Crystal, you know, um, love to get your view on this. You, you live in the heart of the city. You're there. Sorry, London. I know you're cool and all that. But New York City is pretty damn awesome, too, when it comes to banking. I mean, what do you, what's the mood like with the big banks? And what's it like on Wall Street right now? Wow, that's a good question for me because I actually live in Midtown Manhattan. That's like the center of the epic center. And as I can tell, when it first started, I've never seen New York emptier than it was. And a lot of the office buildings for a lot of banking headquarters have been just empty, uh, even though recently there has been talks that some banks started to bring traders and some part of their teams back to the offices. Uh, but of course, some people don't actually feel safe to do so. So it's very interesting uh, to see how that from. Uh, but just from what I cover on the investment banking side, I have to say it actually has been the highlights of a lot of the banking reports we have seen in the past few days. Uh, even though M&A activities are down considerably given the market volatility, I think uh, refinitive, data, refinitive data says the worldwide M&A was down about 40% in the first quarter, but the banks were able to make big revenue from underwritings. If you look at JP Morgan Chase, their, their underwritings revenue was up about 54% in the first, second quarter. And I think Goldman was also up 36. So I think the banks are definitely taking advantage of the FAST program to keep the capital markets open and making big money from equity underwritings and the fixed income underwritings uh, just to offset their loss in M&A and IPO. So if I remember right, and Jay, you probably remember the story, when they, when they opened the trading floors back up, the traders had to sign a waiver, a COVID waiver, right? That if they, if they did, if they were diagnosed with COVID, that, that the New York Stock Exchange was not responsible for this. As, as by the way, does Trump rallies? Let's just get that out of there. In order to attend a Trump rally, you have to sign a waiver. That's no political comment, everybody. I'm just making a statement. Um, I, so, so Nick, um, we, we've gotten a view from New York. So let's go to the second financial capital of the world. <laughs> Sorry, it's a US show. London, what's what's the vibe been like there? Yeah, well, first, it's up for debate who's the financial capital of the world. <laughs> let's just make that clear. Um, yeah, I mean, from what I've understood that their offices have been pretty dynamic. Um, I have some friends who are traders and some of them are working in like these offices which have been built, uh, you know, quicker than actually some of the hospitals have, which is which has been pretty impressive. Um, I think like a big question 
that that I've had and I've had people ask is, you know, why is the stock market doing well when the economy isn't? Um, you know, and I don't really have a great answer for that, and I don't think I still do. But I think a large part of it is that, um, that especially in the states, this government is providing this massive backstop and it's um, really propping up the economy. And also, actually, that a lot of U.S. you know workers aren't really employed by public companies, so. I've been trying to search for that answer. I'd be interested to hear what other people think about that. Yeah, I, I'll give you my view on this. Um, the If you're looking for the NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange to reflect the everyday life of most Americans, um, uh, call me. I've got a condo to sell you uh, <laughs> up in Canada. Uh, not even close, right? Um, which is... It's incredibly striking. And, uh, you know, there's enough going on in the U.S. right now between... Uh, COVID, between uh, unemployment just came out today, another 1.3 million Americans, um, uh, new filers for unemployment and the date that we're recording this show. So no, the two don't reflect um, at all what the situation is. I've been saying on the breakfast show that we do on LinkedIn almost daily that August is really the key indicator of, in my opinion, what the hell's going on in the U.S. because that's when a lot of the stimulus goes away. The stimulus checks are gone. The extra $600 you get for unemployment. Um, we've seen a uh, significant number of U.S. companies file for bankruptcy, such as Hertz um, is a good example of that. Um, Brooks Brothers, where Jason buys all of his beautiful shirts that he owns and so on and so forth. So yeah, there's definitely a disconnect between the two. Um, so I, I can't say what it's like on the ground because I live in Jacksonville, Florida. We don't have a great stock exchange here. But I would be curious. I think one thing that really struck me, though, in the earnings that came out, and Jay, I'd love to get your view on this. Goldman did really well. So Goldman Sachs, that that uh, dinosaur of a bank, did incredibly well. And one part of it was Marcus. So Marcus reported their deposits increased a record $20 billion and now stand at $92 billion. So a little round of applause for Marcus um, and what they did at Goldman. And I, I guarantee you, Jay, you're not shocked by that whatsoever. <laughs> well, it, it's interesting that uh, that COVID has led to some massive changes in a variety of industries. If you're in the airline industry or in hotels and restaurants, it's pretty damn bad news. If you're in tech and video conferencing, you, it, you've had the best quarter ever by a long way. Um, I was just looking up, it's something like 17.5% uh, of the S&P 500 is down to the five biggest tech companies. So, you know, with some of the big trackers, uh, I think what we're seeing the, the, uh, the advanced, the accelerated digital transformation of a lot of industries driven by COVID, because we actually have to do things at distance now. Um, and uh, there's a lot of, of the big stocks that, that do take a fair proportion of the S&P, for instance, um, that are buoying up those sectors that, um, that are suffering. So I think, that, I think there's something interesting there, how... Uh, is not the same across every public company. Some are doing phenomenally well. A lot are doing very badly. And, um, you know, we're going to see how that, that develops. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see how the second half of this year plays out. Um, I know that, like J.P. Morgan, for example, their prediction for the second half of 2020, they said it's expected the U.S. unemployment rate to remain at nearly 11% by the end of this year compared to the 6.6% it forecasted in May. If you can do math, that's almost a 5% increase. The bank also said it set aside more than $10 billion for losses, including nearly $9 billion to build up its reserves. I mean, um, 
I'm really curious, Crystal, do you think this is a good move? Do you think most banks are going to be doing this, anticipating a, a rather ugh, second half of the year? Yeah, I think it's definitely going to be a common thread throughout the year, maybe until we have a vaccine that banks is going to put cash aside and also heap help their clients to preserve more cash. And one comment I do want to make is the differences between big tech companies and the corporate America versus the small and the middle businesses. And I think a lot of the unemployment number and the economic growth we're seeing actually hinged on the smaller businesses that may have haven't been reflected altogether in the stock indexes, uh, NASDAQ or S&P 500. And there has been the belief that the, the bigger the companies are, you know, the more cash that they have, that the more likely they may be taking a leading role emerging out of this uh, crisis. And we will rely on those big tech companies even more than they were before, but not necessarily on the smaller ones. So I think it would be uh, interesting to make the distincting, uh, the distincting, uh, to make the distinction between the two players and see how they may perform differently on, in stock market and in real life. Yeah, flat out in the U.S., um, small businesses, small to medium-sized businesses, SMBs, SMEs, whatever the hell you want to call them, um, they are the lifeblood of the U.S. economy, flat out. You know, um, They do. And by the way, they're getting their ass handed to them right now. Uh, there's a lot of debate going on on you know what we do. We've had the Paytech protection program here in the U.S. We now have the CARES uh, program and act that's been gone out. Um, we are in an election uh, year, if you didn't know that, in the U.S. Thank God um, uh, that we're going through. So there's a lot happening right now. And what I'm worried about um, to some degree is a, is, you know, a lack of um, action by, by Congress. And yet we didn't see that in March. We saw a lot of movement. And that tells you how bad the situation is. Is here. I am. Um, um, no, no. I was going to say one of the things that I, that caught my eye. I'm, I think I mentioned it last week, but uh, I was I looked a little bit further into it. Was the personal savings rate uh, hit a historic 33% in April, according to the U.S. Bureau of Economic Analysis? Um, so that so while uh, spending, um, I think it dropped 10%, 12%. Uh, actually, no, spending declined 13.6% for the month. Uh, personal savings as a share of personal disposable income reached an all-time high of 33%. Like, you know, the, the the previous high was in 1975 at like 16%. So as well as big corporations putting putting money aside, it seems like the man in the street as well is um, is putting more money aside and also spending less, understanding that things might happen. So uh, interestingly enough, and I'm, man, Jay, I'm glad you brought that up. We call him Jay, by the way, everybody at 11FS. His name is Jason. He goes by Jay here. <laughs> um, uh, a trillion, over a trillion dollars moved into savings and into, into deposits as of January this year. 40, I believe 45, 46% of that went to four banks. So, you know, this is too big to fail, too big not to succeed. Crystal, to your point, right? I think we're going to see these large companies do extremely well. Um, if anything, Amazon, Walmart, uh, you know, Publix and the grocery store front have done extremely well. And we're seeing kind of this unbalance happening. What's it like in the, in the UK, Nick? Cause I don't know. Cause I can't get on a damn plane and go anywhere. Cause my passport is useless. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, it's, it's a really interesting point that, um, Jay, I'll call him Jay, you know, um, hey. that, that Jason made around the savings rate being at 33% because we're seeing it really trickle down into the fintech space. Um, 
traditional, like especially in the US, these high yield checking accounts, right, which kind of rely on spending, right? That's kind of how the model works. Um, they're not that profitable anymore. And, you know, we have businesses which which make a living from referring customers and um, finding origination for these new businesses, new customers. And that whole model is kind of dried up right now, at least for the very short term until the economy bounces back. So that savings number is really, really interesting because it's having like huge trickle down effects into these fintech businesses. Well, that's a great segue. Let's talk about some of these fintech businesses. So we'll go from the big banks to one of the big fintechs, especially here in the US. Let's talk about Marketa because um, they are RI in an IPO. So Reuters and some writer named Crystal Hu actually uh, cut the story out there. Later this month, Marketa is planning to interview investment banks that are seeking roles in its IPO, which come come later this year or in 2021, according to an anonymous resource. Marketa raised 150 million USD in a private funding round back in May, doubling its valuation to 4.3 billion. Banks have told the company it could go public at a considerably higher valuation. Let me caution that. Look at Encino, everybody, but we'll pass that. Founded in 2010 and backed by Goldman Sachs and Visa, Marketa has developed a platform that it says makes payment card processing and issuing simpler and more efficient for businesses. And an 11FS who has done work with Marketa, I think we would agree with that. The company currently operates in the U.S., Canada, Europe, and Asia Pacific. By the end of last year, more than 140 million cards have been issued through its platform. And Crystal, we know Jason Gardner, the, the CEO and founder of Marketa really well. We know the team there really well. We really love them. Oakland-based company. I believe they're just opening up an office in Denver too, if I'm not mistaken. But you co-wrote this story. So, hey, everybody, this is exclusive right here. Can you give us a little bit more details and, and your perspective on this? Yeah, I think it's just a really uh, reflection of how good fintech companies that has been doing well prior to COVID now has really seen their growth accelerating and the capital market is wide open to them. I think uh, to Jay's point earlier that a lot of this has been accelerating the digital transformations we're living through. So if you look at Marketa's uh, main customers, Square, uh, DoorDash, I think those are an Instacart. And I think those are the companies that people started to use more during this crisis. We're ordering food online. We're ordering our groceries online. And Marketa has been benefiting from that growth. And being the size it is, Marketa last year had seen 100% growth, which is pretty remarkable for a company in its size. Uh, so I think the company was just raised a new round in May, as we reported. And now it looks to go into public market either later this year or earlier last year. And we believe uh, the valuations banks are pitching a significant higher just because the growth uh, rate it has seen in this company. Yeah, I'm, I'm really pleased to see some of these American companies go into, you know, to do an IPO. Marketa being a great example of them. I mentioned Encino before, um, a great company um, based out of North Carolina, who I know when they first came out, this idea of being built on top of Salesforce, everybody was like, yeah, that's cute. Encino's done well, everybody. If you're a mid-size or a community bank in the U.S., you're probably using Encino. I think they got like 1,100 uh, customers in that space. So, and, and also, I think this is great news because I think it's coming up maybe next year that Ant Financial IPO comes out. And I think they got a valuation of like $200 billion or some 
ridiculous number that 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 will own the news cycle for quite a bit. So Marketa's IPO comes among a wave of stock listings by companies seeking to capitalize on the market's recovery in the aftermath of the pandemic. I mean, Nick, one, when the hell will be the aftermath of the pandemic? I guess when a vaccine comes out and is proven. Um, but I mean, are you surprised at the number that we're seeing come out right now? Um I'm not really surprised by seeing the sort of these banking as a service products, seeing so much uptake. Uh, you know, I think where they were all heading is taking these really like legacy systems, which a lot of them are, aren't really built in the cloud and that these new products are nimble, easy to use. So I think they've just seen a huge, like fast forward, if you will, imagine like five year timeframes are now kind of one year. That's what we're looking at. Um, and that's why they're so popular. And that's why it makes a lot of sense for these businesses to even mention the idea about going public, like you saw Lemonade go public too. Um, and I think you're going to see a few more of them. Yeah, it's uh, Lemonade's a great example of that. I think there are some lessons that Marketa should take, and Jason and his team are very smart. They should look at what happened with, with um, Encino and what they came in at the original price. Um, you know, Obviously, Lemonade. I love Lemonade. For those that aren't familiar with Lemonade, we're talking healthcare. And insurance, um, and um, God, I wish they would come down to Jacksonville, Florida. By the way, but you touched on a great point. You talked about banking as a service. So, Jay, everybody, you know, every time I say Jay, everybody take a drink. Okay, hey Jay, <laughs> um, it's a drinking game. Uh, Jay, you have been talking about banking as a service ever since I met you, and the fact that now this is becoming hot concept in the U.S. Are you surprised by that? One that has taken this long, and two, now that it is this hot. Well. In the consulting work that we do, we do with clients, uh, we're seeing more and more of this platformification, you know, this uh, um, taking the rails that money and transactions uh, happen on and providing that as a service, taking financial products and making that, you know, bank in a box or credit card in a box, debit card in a box, and then having people build intelligent services and, and end-to-end journeys on top of those things. Now, the financial products have to be there. The rails have to be there. So how does a new fintech access those things? So, you know, how do you make money in a, in a gold rush? You sell shovels, you know, and, uh, and basically there are people coming along who are creating uh, the platforms, the new utilities that then provide the, the basis, the foundations, the pipes on which the, the fintechs can fight it out bet- between themselves. Do they care who wins as long as, you know, all of the big players start, uh, use them? Not really. Um, running utilities really different from uh, the higher risk consumer proposition. Um, but if you do it in the right way, and especially when you're competing with very traditional old school providers, whether they're banks or, you know, people who get on stage and say, yeah, I was a fintech. We were the original fintech back in 1970. You know, um, they weren't and they're not. And the approach is just very different from uh, from these new players. So, yeah, I love that analogy of, um, you know, in a gold rush, you sell shovels. There's another one that kind of springs to mind that I heard last week that I love, which is if you don't have a seat at the table, you're probably on the menu. So um, I I know I love that quote. I'll be using that on every show. So, um, you know, Crystal, you know, again, from your viewpoint, you, you help co-write um, and co-author the, the, this article about Marquetta. One, um, you know, what do you think they're going to use the raise for and how good of a move is this, do you feel, for Marquetta? 
I think Barcada is going to mainly use the race uh, to fuel its future growth. I think one of their bigger uh, ambition is to expand geographically. Yeah. Uh, now they're already in a lot of countries, uh, but I think they're recently doing some new partnership in Europe. And apparently a lot of the uh, clients they've already been working with are global platforms. So it seems like they can really be benefiting from that trend. And I think Mercada is one of the many kind of successful fintech examples that we're going to see will have good exit options um, that either attracting bids from incumbents like big banks, companies like Goldman or uh, Visa or MasterCard. I mean, earlier this year, we have seen the big M&A transaction uh, from Visa who bought Flight for $5.3 billion. And I think recently MasterCard did a deal with Finicity. Uh, so I think we'll continue to see that exit uh, because those uh, incumbents want to attract using uh, the latest uh, fintech to buy through acquisitions and, you know, instead of just developing everything in-house. And also we'll see more uh, stronger players just, you know, may have rejected those offers and just want to go on its own. As you mentioned, there would be uh, uh, Makeda and Unfinancial, which is also an amazing story broke by my coworker in Hong Kong. And I think the other story we did is Coinbase, which is, Kind of interesting because it refers to the uh, crypto space and they're also considered a direct listing. Very interesting to see how the negotiation with SEC will be like there. Yeah, back in the day, I used to work for Tesis, as did uh, another one of um, 11FS co-founders, Simon Taylor. And um, if I was still at Tesis, I would be seriously going, acquire Marketa, acquire Marketa, acquire Marketa. Because I, I love Tesis, nice company, but I've also been to their data centers and I know what they run on. That's not a knock. That's just reality. As to Chase's well, I mean, point, actually, right? um, I don't think it was Tesis, but I remember back in the sort of Starling and Monzo days, uh, getting a an appointment to talk to some card issuers, card processors, and I remember talking to one old school vendor uh, that told us that um, we could have a, a preparatory meeting to talk about what it is we might want for from them in, in in two months' time or something. And then that would then allow them to scope the team that would then work on the proposal that would then do, you know, deliver the thing in another three months. It was like, and, and so we sat in the room. I remember I sat with, you know, basically the entire Monzo team. And we said, well, well what do you need to know? Because everyone's here. We could just tell you now. Oh, no, 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 no. That's not how the, pro that's not how the process works. And there is something about cadence of, banks and large professional services companies and large vendors, they have a certain rhythm and a certain way of working. And no one wants to rock the boat for anyone else. You know, the bank works at a speed that the, the management consultancy likes and that the vendor works at. And they've, they've got this shared cadence. And then when you see new providers come along, it's not, um, it's not coincidental that a lot of the new challenges are built on new providers because you, you know, you go and talk to a new provider and they're like, great, okay, we'll, we'll get you a few cards and we'll get you a, an API sandbox next week. And it's very difficult for the big providers to do that. So I do think there's something about the, the, there's disruption in the banking space, but there's disruption in the vendor space and in the consulting professional services space because of this, you know, military industrial complex thing, this, you know, ecosystem, this, the way that everyone works at the same kind of pace in the same kind of way on these massive projects. Yeah. A friend of mine, JP Nichols always has a great quote. Uh, you're not a fast follower if you can't move fast. And I think I just described 
majority of the banking industry. All right, with that, we're going to take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsor. This podcast is brought to you by Jack Henry Digital, the pioneer and creator of personal digital banking that helps community financial institutions strategically differentiate their digital offerings from those of mega banks, big techs, and fintechs. So how do they do it? With the Bano Digital Platform, a complete 100% API-enabled open digital banking platform. You get beautiful, lightning-fast, native apps for your customers and members, and cloud-based, core-connected back office tools for your employees. We really have to see these products to fully understand the platform's potential. Visit Bano.com to schedule a demo. Do you love InsureTech and insurance? So do we. InsureTech Insider is a bi-weekly podcast from 11FS, where hosts Sarah Kachansky and Nigel Walsh dig into the latest news and hot topics from the global InsureTech scene, together with guests from the industry's most interesting players. A new episode goes live every other Wednesday. Simply visit ii.11fs.com or download it from your favorite podcast player. Okay, now back to the news show where we're going to take a look at some other news from the U.S. this week. So our first story is around SoFi. SoFi files a banking charter application with the OCC. This comes from FinTech Futures. So FinTech firm SoFi has plans of becoming a bank, filing a national bank charter application with the OCC. Founded in 2011, SoFi provides student loan refinancing, mortgages, personal loans, and investing. The firm is worth more than $4.3 billion currently. SoFi operates with a network of partner banks. But with this new step, it seems to be aiming to strike out on its own. It has submitted a de novo application to the OCC. The process involves rigorous checks conducted by both the Federal Reserve and the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, or the FDIC as it's known, to check compliance with laws, regulations, and supervisory policy. This process can take several years. Just ask Farrell Money. Um, the great example, I think it took them three and a half, four years to do this. So Varro Money and Square have both received only conditional or preliminary approval from regulators, despite the former having started its application back in 2017, and they're the only ones yet to do so. So, Nick, this is an interesting story, man. SoFi is a very interesting company, for one, but what's your take on this? Um, well, it allows me to be a bit proud to live in the UK, where it's a bit easier to get a banking license um, in the US. But It's a bit easier to go to college and university. Yeah. <laughs> as somebody who has four kids, by the way. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I think it makes a lot of sense. So I, th- I think, you know, 2017, they first tried this and then withdrew their application for various reasons, but predominantly the management team or someone in the management team leaving. Um, I think it makes a lot of sense, you know, it gives them a lot more flexibility around the products they can offer primarily. And I also think it, they can, they'll be able to offer more competitive interest rates because they won't have to go through a third party anymore. So I can see this just making their product a little better. The question is, though, as always, is getting a bank charter in America is just not simple. Um, <laughs> given the state regulation, as you'll know, Sam, it opens up a lot of problems that you know aren't in the initial uh, scoping. So I'd like to see how they navigate that. But on the whole, I think better product to the consumer. Well, I think this one's interesting because Crystal, in the last segment, you know, you were talking about um, Marquetta and, you know, possibly an acquisition down the road, right, from a big bank. This is interesting because we're talking about with SoFi, you have, you know, a fintech, a very successful fintech in the U.S. coming out of 2011 that acquired basically a processor. So, you know, this this application comes off the back of SoFi's acquisition of Galileo. Um, I believe that was for about 1.2 billion US. Uh, so you got a payments firm in Galileo that was back in April. I think when that news broke, we all went, oh, they're going to apply for a banking license. 
which makes it very interesting. So to your point earlier about maybe Marketa getting acquired by a bank, this is a fintech purchasing another successful fintech. Do you think that's a trend we're going to see more of? Yeah, I think we have to know even SoFi is a private company. It's very well founded. And so yeah. it has the capital and the support from its investors uh, to make necessary acquisitions. And uh, if you look at its previous 1.2 billion uh, acquisition, which is very interesting, Cam, I think at top of the crisis, uh, which is in uh, April or May, and a large chunk of that transaction was scheduled as uh, equity. So it's very equity heavy instead of stock. So we do think those structures can uh, help a lot of the deals, especially for private companies to get the deals done, that they don't need to raise a lot of external financing, but they want to, uh, in a SoFi's case, to diversify their uh, portfolio and a product offering to be able to compete in the market. Yeah. So to next point, Jay, um, that the whole concept of applying for a bank charter in the U.S. is God awful painful. I mean, obviously you went through this with Monzo. You saw this, you know, with Starling in the U.K., obviously a bit different here in the U.S. Um, and in the U.S., just so everyone knows, one of the things that 11FS we do is we build digital banks for banks. One, because they already have the charter, <laughs> by the way, or in some cases, multiple charters. Um, and we do believe if done correctly, they can be successful. You know, it's interesting in the U.S. You had Varo Money, who has been, on, you know, the CEO has been on our show a couple of times. They applied for the charter. It was very painful to get there. Grasshopper Bank has uh, uh, in the U.S. had gone down the route for small businesses with the OCC. Um, Lending Club just said the hell with it and bought Radius Bank. <laughs> so you had a fintech buying a bank. So, I mean, Jay, multiple options to get there. None of them easy, though, right? Yeah, I mean, the U.S. is is uh, the market's just very different. Was there 5,000-ish credit unions, 5,500 community banks, 5,000, um, you know, payment companies of different types. So, um, you know, 15, 20,000, uh, you know, banking type organizations. That's a very different space than most parts of the world. In the UK, the problem was there were too few banks. So actually we needed more competition in order to drive things along. Where in the US, you've arguably got too many. Um, so for given that scale and balance sheet do make a big difference. So uh, I can understand why there's reticence to give out new licenses uh, in, a, in a space where there are lots of licenses out there. Um, uh, but in terms of SoFi, look that, I mean, what, started in 2011, student loans, then went into mortgages, personal loans, stock trading, crypto trading, ETFs, checking accounts. I mean, they're doing banking, you might argue. Uh, and to Nick's point, by being a bank themselves, by giving them the license to hold deposits and to lend them out, fractional reserve and net interest margin, hallelujah, um, it actually gives them access to a business model, uh, while at the same time allows them to, um, to use the brand of being a bank um, with, uh, with the protection of that, 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 that comes with that in order to drive you know, customer acquisition and, and trust from end customers. So I think, you know, it's smart. It, it is a, they are a diversified financial services business to have more licensing allows them to be deeper into that stack. And, um, and it should be interesting to see what they do with it. Yeah. I mean, Nick, um, if your business model is based on interchange, especially in the US, you're screwed personally. Well, you're better off in the U.S. than you are in the in Europe, though. Well, yeah, you know, good point. I hadn't. <laughs> <laughs> it sucks here. It sucks more. 
in Europe. So, I mean, the idea of actually having that charter and being able to hold the deposits and then offer all these, you know, credit cards. Yeah, it's like they spent nine years proving they can be a bank and now they finally get to be a bank. Um, so it's probably going to work out because they've, they've managed to prove they can do that responsibly. So, so I, I like dropping to Nick at the end of each of these segments because he wraps it up incredibly well. Good job. I like that. That was a great way to uh, say it. Spent nine years proving they could be a bank. So I, I can tell you this much. It'll be another three years before they get that freaking charter. <laughs> I'll go ahead. I'll, I'll go ahead and put some Maybe money. That... You guys are cool. And you can help them out. With that. <laughs> hey, hey. Uh, the, one of their co-founders, uh, Dan Macklin, is actually a good friend of ours. And, and by the way, SoFi does have an office here in Jacksonville. Look there up Jacksonville, go. everybody. It's cooler than you think. All right, our next story. Uh, this one's about Robinhood. They raise yet again, uh, go through another raise, and they reach a new valuation. This story coming from Finextra. Robinhood has topped up its Series F funding round. How many series are there, Jay? Is there like a Series FF? ZZ? As many as you know. want. All right, well, they have just topped up its Series F funding round with an extra $320 million, valuing the stock trading app at $8.6 billion. Wow. Robinhood said in May it raised $280 million in its Series F. The extra money brings the round to $600 million, making it one of fintech's most valuable startups. The firm has added millions of funded accounts just this year, and in recent weeks, it has seen record revenue growth, with investors keen to take advantage of market volatility during the COVID-19 pandemic. However, the increased demand has put a strain on Robinhood's systems, with the app experiencing several outages during March. Yeah, I do remember those stories coming out. All right, Nick, here we go, man. You're an investor. So what do you think of this raise in evaluation? Yeah. So, so look, Jason raised a great point earlier. And I think you've seen a bunch of the savings and investment fintechs doing really well because people are hoarding their money and they want to invest it, um, which plays right into their hands. And, you know, they had a few issues. They had that outage. And I think there was also a suicide that was related to an yeah. exotic product. Yeah. Um, but it's, you know, you asked how many rounds are there going to be, right? They're still finding capital available in the private market. So, you know, why would they go public at this point? Um, I think the interesting point that it raises, right, is with an 8.6 million valuation or billion, sorry. I think the, the, the short list now of potential acquirers is quickly shrinking. <laughs> so yeah, that's a good so point. it almost feels like they are destined for the public market. Because I really, at this point, especially like given now, wonder and, you know, Crystal, you'll be able to talk about this much, much further, but who has the, the balance sheet to pull off an acquisition like that? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question, Crystal, because, I mean, you talked about, we talked about that with Marquetta, right? I think they're probably evaluated, their valuations, their cap is somewhere like 4.5, 4.6 billion. I mean, Robinhood, uh, you know, you're talking a, a different beast here. Um, you know, would you be, su be surprised to see in a large um, old school investment company or one of the banks come in and, and try to, you know, come in and purchase Robinhood. I mean, there is always that possibility for strategists to come in. But I think also at this point, a lot of the big strategics are building out their own trading platforms if they want. And they are also offering commission-free, um, you know, trading to compete against Robinhood. Um, so I don't see the point for those who are already in the business to make the purchase. And just not just thinking about strategics, I think uh, a products has been more and more popular is SPAC. Like, I, I don't think Robinhood will go through SPAC, but if you look at Bill Ackman's SPAC, 
uh, that, you know, with 4 billion put down, like he can take money maybe in the 10 billion size range. Uh, so I will be interested to see whether more fintech unicorns will consider the SPAC route. Yeah. Hey, Jay, I'm curious from your standpoint, um, you know, Robinhood is a classic example of a disruptor coming in and forcing the the incumbents to change, right? I mean, you look what Robinhood did. We talk about democratizing financial services. Um, um, obviously, some problems when it came with Robinhood. Nick mentioned that you know he did have the suicide of uh, a, a very young college student um, that was using Robinhood and basically freaked out when he saw he was I can't even remember one hundred and seventy six thousand dollars down. Um, and I think actually I do think Robinhood addressed that pretty well, um, uh, meaning. They had an incredibly poor situation, and they came in and uh, put a lot of programs in place to, to to address that. But Jay, this is a classic example of a fintech coming in and completely disrupting a market, and especially the business model. Yeah, exactly. And and so um, it's super interesting, but there are but there are problems. I mean, when you look at the size of the uh, the balances of of someone investing in Robinhood. It's one thousand to five thousand dollars. These aren't high-end, sophisticated investors. It's people putting their money into this thing, like uh, riding the bull market and uh, seeing things go up and up uh, until they don't. So, uh, and that does worry me. The commission-free democratization. Everyone can get access to investing in the markets. I think if you understand the volatility that the public markets have, then that's great. But I'm not sure, to be honest, how how well um, th- these players make that point that actually you can lose a third of your money overnight. So you know, don't put your uh, hard-earned savings for the, that you need for your gas bill or mortgage or whatever um, in, into these products. So um, yeah, I, I, I mean, when we talk to banks about the the savings investment spectrum, um, there are not there are lots of individual products but there are very few players that will take you from get your emergency fund make sure you can survive for three to six months with with some liquid cash somewhere then get into some big trackers and then have you know build up the pyramid so at the end at some point in the the very top of it you put a few hundred dollars into a stock you like but the majority of it should not be in there and i i personally would like to see more of that more connecting uh savings and investments into portfolios that make sense rather than saying, look, you know, everyone makes all of this money on the stock market. You can too. Just click a few buttons and with our super easy frictionless interface, you can have thousands of dollars at work in the market. Like that, that makes me a little bit um, worried. Yeah. So Robinhood right now, they boast over 13 million user accounts. They've seen significant growth since the pandemic kicked in. The average Robinhood customer is 31 years old and to Jay's point, 50% of his customers have never invested before. So let that kind of sink in. Yeah, Crystal, you wanted to, to raise a point here. Yeah, Sam, to your point, I actually have talked to one of the those new Robinhood traders you were just talking about. Uh, when the U.S. car rental company Hers filed a bankruptcy a few weeks ago, you may remember their stock went crazy just because suddenly bankruptcy becomes an investing theme around the Robinhood traders. And everyone was wondering who are those people and why are they pumping money into a bankrupt stock, which has enormous risks. 
So I tracked down some of the investors on Reddit, of course, and listened to their thesis. So it turns out a lot of them are using their stimulus checks from the U.S. government to invest on Robinhood Mm -hmm. in bankrupt stocks like hers because they are only looking at stocks under five and they're doing day trading and they think they will able to get their money back as some people share screenshots of you know their Robinhood account went up 100% every day and some of them are doing options trading as well because on Robinhood it is easier to trade options than other you know a traditional platforms which may require more scrutiny so i think Robinhood has gotten some bad press and scrutiny on that point and they have starting to make some changes but i would assume if they want to hit the public market they probably need to address some of that a bit more than they are what they're doing now yeah, we talked about this earlier in the show about um, you know the, the the New York Stock Exchange not really reflecting uh, what's happening in in the U.S. and with the economy. And it's been fascinating to read the number of articles talking about solutions like Robinhood and the contrib- you know the contribution that they're having to this incredibly large disconnect. Jay, when you were talking in my mind, I kept thinking Bitcoin, 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 but Simon Taylor's not here. So he can't give me a hard time about crypto. So we'll just move on before Simon, watch Simon suddenly appear on the show and go, Sam. So we'll move on. Um, our next story. Well, this no, is about- no, but I, but I hear crypto is great. Um, Cause I saw Bill Gates and Elon tweeting about it yesterday. Oh. So I, I figure it's a, um, you know, it's, it's a good thing to invest in. Only if it's doggy coin. Okay, let's just get that <laughs> out of the way. If it's doggy coin, well, now with Kanye dropping out of the presidential race, it just throws everything <laughs> into a, an incredible uh, disarray. All right, our next story. Fintech startup Lannister. And can I just say, I love that name as a Game of Thrones guy and one of my favorite characters, you know, Lannister, well-named. Fintech startup Lannister raises 15 million pounds to earn a 150 million pound Valuation, the story from Finextra, Lannister, a personal financial management or PFM startup founded in 2019, has raised 15 million pounds to support its forthcoming commercial launch in the winter <laughs> sorry, of 2020. Game of Thrones-ish reference there. The investment from Mylea Capital, hope I said that right, gives the VC a 10% stake in the company at a valuation of 150 million pounds. Lannister plans to use the fresh capital to grow its operational customer support teams and scale toward its product launch. Yes, I just said that right. Scale toward its product launch. Let that sink in, everybody. The Hammersmith-based company employs 45 full-time staff and has plans to grow a 150-person support team in Greece. Hmm. I should get my resume ready. I love Greece. It has also recently announced partnerships with organizations such as MasterCard and Jumio. Having already secured $2 million or two million pounds in seed money, Lannister is creating a new debit card that links up to eight bank cards to help customers better manage their finances via new technology and open banking. Nick, our resident investor for this show, thoughts? I think that's a nice, generous di- donation from Malia Capital to Facebook's paid search engine and some of the other above-the-line advertising campaigns. Um, you, you know, <laughs> I don't think it seems that differentiated. Uh, and it kind of reminds me of that business, Viola Black, if you saw them all over the train station. Um, I haven't seen much of them since. So I think very kind donation. Um, it's, but from a, in all seriousness, it does seem a bit like a curve. Um, who've, who've been making a guide of this for a while and launching eight cards on one card as they've proven is not easy and they've managed to get it right. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know about this one. No, I, I was going to say the uh, the same thing. I mean, uh, there's a couple of, there's a couple, I, I, 
I sincerely wish them well. It's you know an amazing journey. They've done amazingly well to get a two million seed money followed by a fifteen million you know subsequent round without a product in the market. I mean, you know, if nothing else, they can sell to investors. Um, but there's a couple of of red flags for me that just make me sort of wince a bit. You know, they talk about this. Uh, you know, eight accounts on one card sounds like curve but they don't mention Curve in any of the interviews or no one's ever brought that up. They talk about multi-currency account, but they don't mention Revolut or anything to do with that. You know, they talk about fintechs and managing, you know, day-to-day money, but don't mention Starling or Monzo or or any of those players. Um, and uh, and the, uh, the the biggest red flag for me is the, um, the photo that comes with the uh, uh, article is this amazing office that's painted this like nice gray with a massive logo on the wall. And, and you're like, wow, like you, I don't know. It just makes me a little bit um, antsy when you, when you see, um, you know, interior designed office of a company that doesn't have a product in the market yet. Um, and, uh, and maybe that's just a me thing, but, uh, you know, I've invested in things and I'm, it just makes me a little bit, okay. So where's the money going? So here's my favorite part of the story. I mean, I just absolutely love this. They have a website. That's good. But their website has less than 200 words total on it, explaining what they do and what they're creating. So I, I get UX and simplicity. <laughs> I'm okay with that. I get the Google search page. But holy crap, if for that investment, their, their pitch deck really must be stellar. That's all I can say. And they must have a team that knows how to pitch incredibly well. Yeah. Yeah. And I also think, especially with these funding announcements nowadays, you never really know what the terms of the deal are. And you can you can make funding announcements seem huge. Uh, oftentimes, companies do it by including their debt in their equity funding announcements. So they raise these mega rounds. Um, this could be like a tranched investment. Um, so you just you never really know about these things until um, you dig a bit deeper. Yeah. I mean, and the thing that kind of surprises me is a trend that I've been seeing in, in the market is that we're we're leaning more towards smaller rounds, smaller valuations, right? Just because you can raise 50 million, that's great. Why take that much, right? Do you need 50 or do you need 10 or five? So, I mean, that that's part of what kind of, and, and every time I talk, I hear podcasts and talks with, you know, you know, really good investors, they always say the same thing or anybody that's supporting these is be careful how much you're, you're giving away and be realistic on how much you have. But for, for a website that only has 200 words and a product that's not in market, uh, Crystal, I, I see a story coming in a couple months by Reuters uh, around this. I mean, that's a good point, right? Like how investors are approaching this environment. And I think it's both encouraging and somewhat maybe a warning sign to see that, you know, there's still dry powder around. And if you're a good fintech company, at least you have some good pitch deck or some good ideas, you're still able to get good founding to get your idea started. Yeah, I, I was listening to another podcast, Robin Hood Snacks, uh, good friends of ours. We love those guys. Um, and they were they were talking about, I can't remember which company it was. It might have been New Bank or another one, talking about how well they're doing. And they said, in a coincidental story, the uh, SoftBank team looked up the word revenue and profit. I laughed so damn hard at that line. I wish I had come up with that. Um, with that, we'll move on because everybody's looking at me like, oh, God, he actually. Well, no, no, I, like, um, <laughs> I do feel like we've come we've come at this negatively. And I do hope that actually that this secrecy around the, we've got stuff that, that, you know, you guys have never seen before and we're not really telling anyone about it at the moment, but you wait. I would love this 
to be you know the most amazing uh, product launch. And you know, I, I hope they're listening to the podcast and laughing because they've come up with something that is just awesome. I really hope that. For yeah, you. And, so, and they'll have me on record doubting it. But um, in all yeah. fairness, though, if you're going to build a product like this and market it, you're going to need fifty million pounds, right? So at least yeah. there's a bit of sense behind the requirement, albeit I'm amazed they managed to get that. So folks from Lannister, you're more than welcome to come on the podcast. I will, I'll do cosplay. I will dress up as <laughs> of <laughs> Lannister just for that. All right, moving on. Okay, uh, we got to move on now because we're getting toward the end of the show and just to round up some of the other stories from the week that we don't have time to cover because there's so much happening right now. And we can't cover it all in a, in a normal news story segment. So with that, we're going to do rapid fire. And Jay, I'm going to let you start this one off. So the first story is 86400 embarks on a Series B raise. A year after bagging its license, Australian challenger bank 86400 is already working with existing investor Morgan Stanley to plot another funding round. The Series B capital raise is on the starting blocks just three months after 86400 closed its $34.5 million Series A. It raised, it's raised a total of $90 million to date. Uh, it has about 225,000 accounts on its platform and has more than $300 million in customer deposits, having processed more than a billion dollars worth of transactions. Having now rolled out its suite of everyday banking features, the firm's planning to uh, fuel growth by entering new segments, including shared finances and delivering further insights into individual spending and savings patterns. I mean, they, you know, they, they say that Australia uh, in fintech is two or three years behind the UK and the trends hit here, go over there. So Anthony Jenkins, uh, who was at um, uh, First Direct, I think, before Atom, uh, essentially went at, left Atom as chairman, went over, uh, sort of um, co-founded, started 86400. And it looks like it's following that well-trodden path, uh, Revolut, Monzo, Starling, etc., uh, in Australia. So uh, good luck to them. Yeah, I find this uh, an incredibly interesting story. Um, it, it's one that, uh, again, I good luck. I love the Australian market. If Sarah Kachansky was on, we could do a whole segment on this. Uh, our second story is on RailsBank. RailsBank will offer a complete platform to U.S. customers, including banking as a service, cards as a service, and the first of its kind, credit cards as a service, or CCAAS. There's got to be a better acronym. RailsBank believes that the new product will encourage increased competition and innovation within the U.S. $3.8 trillion credit card market with over 40 billion transactions annually. They've already won their first credit card service as a customer. Uh, Unified Money, a neobank for high-earning professionals. The Unified Money credit card will launch in the fourth quarter as an integral part of its single mobile account to help automate personal financial management. As PFM now getting a shout out two or three times on the show. Cards as a Service is a popular market right now following Galileo's launch of its own instant service last month. Will this be a success for RailsBank? Well, at 11FS, we love the team at RailsBank. What I will say that X as a service is the 2020 version of we are the Uber of X. Um, I found an interesting story that just broke yesterday. AWS launched a new product called Interactive Video Service, or IVS, which enables anybody to build their own streaming services. So think of Twitch as a service. So do I think it's a good move? Yes. Do I think credit cards as a service in the U.S. is a good move? We love credit cards in the U.S. So like the team at Rails Bank, good luck. We obviously need to create service as a service, Sam, and, uh, and undercut all of this. Uh, and, I, think, yeah. I think that's that's the next thing. 
Okay, the, the next story in a week of raises. Here's the latest one. TransferWise valuation spikes on uh, stake sale to D1 Capital Partners. Last week, we reported that the share sales were coming for TransferWise to earn them a proposed $5 billion valuation. What is that? Pentacorn? There's got to be some term for it. Uh, this week, it's been confirmed that D1 Capital Partners has paid $200 million for a 4% stake in TransferWise, raising the company's value, valuation to that $5 billion mark. The US hedge fund, which has shares in Amazon, Facebook, and Netflix, bought the TransferWise stake as part of a secondary share sale that was signed last week. And while other big name fintechs are raising cash at a discount to previous valuations, the TransferWise transaction was signed at a 30% premium to an almost identical share sale just over a year ago. Both co-founders now own a 40% stake between them, making them on paper worth $1 billion each. So what do you think, Sam? Good to be a billionaire. Eh? I would love to have a 40% stake uh, giving me $1 billion. <laughs> I, um, I've I've kind of lo um, lost track of TransferWise. There's so many companies to to follow. Uh, having started in you know 2011, they're like the you know the background. The TransferWise has always been there, and it's a long time since they were pulling those crazy stunts in order to get their first customers. Uh, but I um, I went on a blog called uh, SaveOnSend.com that I'm going to give a shout out to because. Uh, it goes into such detail of the, the transaction business models, the corridors. I suddenly got lost down this rabbit hole of um, remittance uh, details and blogging. So I'm going to recommend that to the listeners. That's what Jason calls a Thursday, everybody. Just so you know, that's not uncommon for Jay. All right. And finally, our weekly Wirecard roundup. So the double life of Wirecard's missing COO plus Wirecard's Dublin offices have been searched as the fraud probe widens. So Wirecard COO, Mr. Marcelek, I hope I said his name right, has vanished in the wake of Wirecard's implosion. An international warrant has been issued for his arrest. This movie is going to be kick ass when it comes out. Last week, we reported on the fake immigration documents that were used to distract police and imply he was in the Philippines. Now his whereabouts remain unknown. German prosecutors regard him as one of the key suspects and a vast fraud that for years inflated Wirecard's balance sheets and profits. As well as fraudulent activity within Wirecard itself, the COO appeared to be dabbling in questionable activity elsewhere, including, and this is a long list, folks, including assembling a Libyan militia, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> and associated with Russia's military intelligence directive, the GRU. The agency blamed for the attempted assassination of ex-spy Sergei Skripala in Salisbury, the covert war in Ukraine, and the manipulation of the 2016 presidential election in the U.S. Hollywood would not accept this script, everybody. The COO is now a person of interest to three Western intelligence agencies, according to officials in three countries. Not only that, but the fraud probe and Wirecard itself widened as the head of their Dubai operations was arrested without bail, and the Dublin office was searched, and investigations are also underway in Singapore, Indonesia, and other countries. Good Lord. Crystal, as a reporter, this is the gift that keeps on giving. I know this is just going to be one of the best story of this year. But sadly, I'm in the U.S. side, so I don't follow this closely myself. But it's definitely just be fascinating to watch from afar and love to hear what you guys think now and what's next. This is the U.S. version of Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos, um, which I do believe is going to be a movie called Bad Blood. 
Um, I think Jennifer Lawrence might star in that. I can't yes. remember. But yeah, I Jennifer, so. which is going to be a fabulous podcast, by the way, fabulous book. And the fact that they were able to, she was able to deceive so many people with Wirecard. Um, for me, Jay, the part that really hurts are the fintech companies that had Wirecard as a partner. I mean, flat well, out. Yeah, I mean, you know, Monzo way, way, way back in the day um, had had a relationship with uh, Wirecard. And and there were plenty, you know, we're talking about Marketa. Wirecard were the European equivalent. They came a long time before. They really were, you know, one of the best uh, issuing banks to work with way back in the day. And there were lots of travel money cards and startups like Pocket um, who were using Wirecard, you know, in, in the background. But the story is crazy. And I do I do recommend going to uh, the uh, FT to read this. They've got it outside of their paywall. And the story is called From Payments to Armaments, The Double Life of Wirecard's Jan Marsalek. And the thing just goes on and on. I mean, it's like a, you know, an extended essay. And it's his involvement with Russia and the um, uh, and Libya and his uh, uh, he had uh, documents about the um, the poison attack that happened in the UK. Oh and, you know, you name it. I mean, like it reads just like a spy story. And the, the fact that is it one point nine billion dollars of uh, missing, and it's and this guy you and he's gone. You're never going to find him. This is. Oh, um, I know where he is. He's he's on this island where all the uh, crypto exchange founders <laughs> <have> mysteriously disappeared. <laughs> have ended up. They're all just living it up there somewhere. Uh, it's you know what though, Nick. In all honesty, it is amazing. No matter how good the tech, no matter the product and everything else, it still boils down to people. It still boils down to great leadership. It still boils down to trust. You know, I mean, I don't care how how great the technology is, especially as an investor, right? I mean, because at the end of the day, to a, to a large degree, you're investing in people. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't even imagine being on the board of that business trying to sort unpick this right now, and you know, the probes which are going to be on you as a board member too is, would be pretty scary. So, just good luck to everyone on that board, and hopefully, they can get this thing solved. Uh, what a absolute mess. I will give a quick shout out to Curve. We talked about them earlier. Amanda Orson, who heads up North America for Curve. Um, they decoupled from Wirecard over a weekend. Over a weekend, people. Um, that is an incredible effort by that team and good on them. So getting back to good people and good teams actually meaning something. And believe it or not, with that, we're, we're done. We're up against the clock. I want to thank our guests for coming here. And I want to give them a quick chance to do a shout out where people can find out more about them. So Nick, best place for somebody to contact you and learn more about Octopus Investing. Sure. Yeah. Go to the Octopus website. If you want to talk fintech or you have a new idea, um, you can find my email there and feel free to shoot me one. Um, and if you want to see what I say online, you can follow me at Sando Nicholas on Twitter. On Twitter, would you please post a picture? Of the table, I want to see that thing, the octopus yes. table. Oh, I have to. Well, sadly, not many people are back in that office, so we wait, wait till we open it up, and then I'll send a picture. All right, and Crystal, how about you? And and you're writing at Reuters. Yes, I'm writing at Reuters, and you can read my stories. You know, like the one uh, Makeda on Reuters website, or you know, where elsewhere you can find all Reuters stories because we have a lot of syndicated content. You can also follow me on Twitter, which is Read Crystal Who, where I will post my stories and some random memes. <laughs> random memes, and and speaking of random memes, Jason, what subreddit channels should people get to hold of you on? <laughs> All, all of them. I'm, I'm with Crystal. That's that's where all the best stuff, uh, or you, where you read all the best stuff. Um, so if you want to find me, and if you're a 
bank or an insurance exec and want to build the next big fintech in your particular region, you can reach me at uh, jason at 11fs.com on email or at Jason Bates on Twitter. And as for me, it's Sam at 11fs.com. We keep it simple or Sam all on Twitter. Everybody, thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps make it better and helps others find this show. And just make sure it's a five-star review. If it's not going to be a five-star review, as I tell you all the other time, I will give you a list of podcasts to leave a review for. If you want to join the conversation or if you have suggestions or feedback, find us on social media. Just search for 11fs or Fintech Insider or email podcast at 11fs.com. Thanks very much, everybody, and we'll see you on the next episode.